0: If you have a Bible, flip to the book of Romans, Romans 7, and you want to follow along. We're going to take a bigger chunk of scripture today. Romans 7, 7 through 25. Or if you have a Bible app, that that works too. (laughs) And I'm reading from the modern English version. I go back and forth. Right now, I'm just working through the MEV just for fun. Jordan got me hooked. Um probably going to go back to the ESV eventually here, but uh, MEV. So here's Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Law, sin, and victory. That's our message. Let's look at that together. These are the words of God. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. But I did not know sin except through the law. I would not have known coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was intended for life, proved to be death in me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed me through it. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, Has that which is good become death unto me? God forbid. Rather sin, that it might be shown to be sin, was working death in me through that which is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I do not practice what I will to do, what I will to do, but I do the very thing I hate. But if I practice what I do not will to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the will to do what is right is present uh, with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good I desire to do, I do not do, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that lives in me. Verse 21, I find then a law that when I desire to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God according to the inner man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I serve the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the grace that you've given us, and it is a grace, not something that you owe us. You sustain us and provide for us, and we are grateful. We ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would push these truths into the recesses of our hearts and lives as we humble ourselves before the word that you have given us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So just a warning up front. There are um, a couple of passages in Romans that I have been dreading for some time, (laughs) and this is one of them. The problem, of course, is my own insufficiencies and inadequacies, uh, for we only see dimly. This passage is probably the top contender for the most difficult passage in Romans award, (laughs) Um, and for good reason. You, We just read that, and there's a lot of difficulty in understanding who the I is. Who is the I in this verse? Scholars are divided on on who the I really is. Is it Paul speaking about himself after his conversion, or is it Paul speaking about his life before his conversion? Now, I have been influenced heavily by N.T. Wright's position long ago, and I'm going to kind of modify that a little bit. Um, because if you would have asked me a year ago what I thought, I don't know if I could have really defended it really well. But having gnawed on this verse, these verses <laughs> all week, I, uh, I, I think I have a, a slightly different adjusted view. So uh, my take, and this was something I had heard years ago, and I, I, again, I've more recently been studying it, but I take the I here to mean Old Covenant Israel, actually. Old Covenant Israel, who is still stuck in Adam, And I think there are things sprinkled in the verse that make more sense when you approach it that way. Um, Scholars like Michael Byrd and others, uh, who they tend to think, well, maybe this I here is actually a Gentile convert who looks back on his life, his or her life, and his or her past experiences, having this internal struggle. You know, I I don't do what I want to do, and then the things I want to do, I don't do. is, is it a Gentile convert who's not Jewish, who came into the covenant, who's reflecting on life before he or she became a Christian, and they're just struggling to obey from a pure heart? So that's one, one side of the equation. There's textual evidence for that, especially in Romans 7.1. But here's what I think. I think the truth is it's actually both. And here's why. In the previous section, we looked at that last week in Romans 1, 7 through, uh, Romans seven, rather one through six, he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles. The whole book of Romans, Paul is speaking to Jews and Gentiles who've been brought into this new covenant experience. So he's been talking to them, and no doubt, as it's obvious from Romans chapter one through chapter three, and it's going to be obvious in chapters nine through 11 Paul speaks to both at the same time, all of the time. Think about us. We're in this. We're in a house church. Um, we have several people here today. Um, several people who aren't with us. But uh, you, you kind of find yourself in a situation in the first century where the person across the room from you grew up worshiping the pagan Greek and Roman gods, and then you. An ethnic Jewish person grew up obeying um, Yahweh, but then you realize Jesus is the Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and he's the Savior. And now you're together, and you're in this church together. And you all have baggage, all of us do, but you have a lot of baggage if you grew up in the temple cult and this person grew up in the synagogue. There's, There's different problems. So Paul is constantly in Romans speaking to both. He's trying to deal with both people with both sets of baggages and trying to sort it through, well, you know, what is, what's the deal here? So I believe that's what's going on. Paul speaks to both at the same time. And again, that's because the Roman church who would have received this letter consisted of both types of people. So the I here, the I then, I take is those who are in Adam. They were slaves to sin and even talks about deliverance from this body of death. And then when you read Romans 8, it makes even more sense. But they're slaves of sin with only a flicker of image-bearing light that's inside of them, only to be in the end delivered by Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah who carries the burden of sin on the cross and he breaks its power in the resurrection. So let's just do a quick rundown of the passage and you can kind of follow along um, with me as I go. So verses seven through 12 answer the question of verse seven. What is the question in verse 7? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? If, if, if the law seems to be a channel of sin, think of water coming through a, a, a channel, like a, um, a river or something. The law seems to be a channel of sin. It allows sin to run up and down the banks and, and so on. If that's the case, does that make the law of God guilty and culpable of sin? Can we call it sin? And... Or is it intrinsically sinful? You know, God's righteous standards are here, and we can't meet that. Does that mean the law is oppressive and sinful? And he says unashamedly, no. The law is not sinful. The law simply serves as a flashlight to point out the sin that's already present and largely unaccounted for. It's interesting that Paul here brings up the the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall not worship any other gods, right? The first commandment excludes the worship of other gods. It forbids the worship of anything or any person other than God. But the last commandment, interestingly enough, that's the first. The last is thou shalt not covenant, or excuse me, thou shalt not covet. And it serves as a bookend ruling out the desire to, to violate the first and anything in between. So you want to worship other gods? This is what life looks like. And here's the end. You shall not covet. So don't covet it means don't desire to do any of the other things either. Don't even desire it. So the law essentially explains the fine print to the sinner and his sin. That's what the law does. Okay, it comes in as a flashlight and it shows you this is what covetousness looks like in your life. So sin, he says, seizes the opportunity through the commandment to bear the fruit of more and more covetousness in this example. Sin begets sin begets sin. That's the logic. So the law then, it gives power to the sin for apart from the life-sustaining presence of the law, sin is actually dead with no power. He says that in verse 8. Interesting phrase. So when, it, when the law comes in, sin is given a new lot in life. Okay. So think of it this way. Sin is always an unholy opportunist. Always. The I was alive without the law once, but then the commandment came, sin regained consciousness, and thus it killed him. Verse 10. So without a doubt, when you're reading your Bible, try to always think of it think of in terms of echoes. Um, one of the uh, favorite books that I have back in the day, Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul. And um, the, the author escapes me now but uh, good book and Paul's writing his letters and there are echoes of scripture. And when you read this passage, there's a huge echo that you should be hearing. And that is namely Adam in the garden in Israel at Sinai, Adam. And he's thinking about Adam in the garden and Israel at Sinai. They were alive. Adam was alive and well in the garden, wasn't he? The commandment came. What was the commandment? Don't eat of that tree. And then suddenly there's a desire to eat of that tree. So the law isn't sinful, but then sin came. Same thing with Israel at Sinai. They were alive, but the law came in and it slayed them for their sin. So being the unholy opportunist that it is, sin, through the vehicle of the law, deceived us into thinking wrongly. And Paul says that it killed him, the eye, verse 11. So part of, part of what Paul Desires to explain is that Israel, who was given the good and true law, is now shown to be, they're in Adam just like the Gentiles. They're in Adam. So you can't walk in here. So we got the, you, you on this side are the unfortunate pagan temple people, and you guys are the ethnic Jews who are good and righteous and holy, right? So you can't waltz into the church and say, you know, I have the law of God. What is wrong with you, pagans? Paul says, no, 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 no. You may have the law, but do you know what the law does to you? It condemns you. It reveals the sin that's inside of your heart. You can't boast in that. How dare you strut into the church service here in Rome and act like that's the case? No way. You're in Adam just like they were in Adam. That's the problem. So all are consigned to disobedience by the law of God. So Gentiles, over here on this side of the room, Gentiles ought not to take the law that they boast in as a means of joining ethnic Israel. And why should Gentiles in the first century not join ethnic Israel? They're experiencing national death and judgment. Don't go there. That's going to happen in in just a few short years, by the way, in AD 70, when uh, Titus, who finished the job that Vespasian started, they waltzed into to Jerusalem and destroyed the place. The siege of Jerusalem took several years, but by August of AD 70, the place was a smeltering heap of ruin. Uh, it was destroyed. God had judged Israel for rejecting their Messiah. So Gentiles, don't go on that team because that team's a losing team as well. So don't go looking to the law as a means of favor when you're in Adam So the conclusion is thus, and look at verse twelve, because this is another verse that you should probably have, um, you know, in the gauntlet of your um, God's law defending arsenal. (laughs) He says the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. So don't go condemning the law of God. So Paul demonstrates that sin and the law are distinct. Sin has commandeered the law for its own purposes, and thus sin produces the very opposite of what it promised that it would produce. This is the sickly heart of sin, to play God. If you want to indulge in sin, you want to play God. It's not like anybody in our government's trying to play God right now, are they? (laughs) Thou shalt wear a bacteria trap on your face. No, no, you're not God. So people want to play God. They want to enact lawless decrees and, 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 and enforce power upon people. So that's what sin does. And sin self-consciously subverts the law order of God. Okay, so today's options are, if you don't like what the other team says, whatever your political team is, and or ideological team, you just call them a nanana boo head person. All right. You just spit insults. And, uh, and people don't even do it as well as Martin Luther did back in the day. Uh, but at any rate, that's a different uh, topic. So if, if that's the case then, doesn't it follow that something good and pure becomes death to him? He says in verse 13, no way. Instead, sin, sin is exposed for the fraud that it truly is. That's what the law does. And it worked death inside of him through the goodness of the law so that the sinfulness of sin would be apparent. Okay, that's verse 13. The law comes in to make sure that you know that sin is actually sin and it actually is wicked and it actually is worthy of death. So in other words, you you don't blame the mirror for revealing your bad haircut. You don't scream at the mirror, how dare you show me what I look like and it's miserable right now. That's what you do. That's what Christians do to the law of God today. Instead of loving it, like we're told in Psalm one nineteen, instead of it reviving the soul, like Psalm nineteen says, we impugn it. We we think it's a terrible thing. We yell at it. It's the same thing as yelling at the mirror for showing you that you just didn't do your hair well today. That's what it's like. So sin needs to be shown as sin, so that God Himself can deal with it fully and finally. This is not a condemnation of the law, this is a celebration of the law passage. So Paul affirms, he says here in verse 14, that the law is spiritual, which is shorthand for simply saying that the law comes from the living God, and it is pure, and it is holy, and it is true. So the problem isn't the law of God in your life, the problem is the man, the person. He is carnal, he says in verse 14, he is sold into slavery. This is not the language of a, of, a, of a regenerate Christian. He's sold into slavery. By the way, we've already covered that Paul has already shown Christ to be the new husband, and he's our new master to whom we are enslaved. This person is enslaved to his sin, but not the Christian. So inside this man, this Adamic man, is this conflict and storm of desires and ambition. All right? You don't have to look very far to see people protesting, holding their BLM signs and holding various signs of whatever. And um, there's ambition there. (laughs) You don't see that and think they have no ambition in life. No, they're there. They're enthusiastic. But inside the unregenerate Adamic person is a conflict and storm of desires and ambition. The Jew Israelite and the wannabe Israelite Gentile they stand together in solidarity with Adam. They're held in the Egyptian dominance of slavery, called sin. And the law is, of course, mismatched with that. The law can't coincide with unrighteousness. It's, lo- it's holy, it's true, it's good. It's the way of life. But this man is dead. He's morally dead. He's covenantally dead. And hence the conflict in verse 15. Try to follow that <laughs> train of thought. His behavior's confusing to him this man, this person. He's unable to do good, but he's always enticed to do wrong. His disobedience proves the goodness of the law as it reveals this betrayal and the savagery of sin. So ultimately, there in verses 16 and 17, sin, in a moment of personification, he almost treats it as a person. Hi, sin. How are you today? Very bad. It's a person. The sin dwells inside of him doing the sinning. He's like, it's the sin within me that does it. In his flesh, he knows that there's no good in him. He wants to do what's right, but he falls short. Verse 18, there's this spark. Even in the most ardent, Antifa-loving person, (laughs) um, who, whatever, I don't like fascism either, but I don't like your solution either, so that's where we're at. But even in the most wretched of persons who you know, hates the law of God, who hates righteousness, who is making their obnoxiousness known, right? Even inside of that person, there's this spark of the imago dei, the image of God that makes that person want to do something good, even though they don't know what good is, but they're, they want to do something good, but they're in bondage and they can't quite make it happen. That's what he says in verse 19. So he's under the influence of sin, and therefore he cannot escape the problem of doing what he doesn't want to do because sin has taken up an unrighteous residence in him. Verse 20. So he is thus this pathetic creature, powerless to obtain righteousness and justice. He knows what ought to be done, but he is unable to accomplish such demands. So the issue here is this. Israel is the eye, including the Gentiles who want to be Israel as well. And this eye lives and boasts in the law of God. But as they fail to realize, this law keeps prodding at the sin within them, showing them that they're actually condemned to death. It is a terrible delusion to think you are right with God, and your answer to whether or not you're right with God is something other than the blood of Christ. It's a terrible delusion to think you're right with God in that manner. So it is a God-given law. It's good and and a good and gracious law to boot, right? And they ought to delight in it, as Psalm 119 says. But the problem with them and the problem with everyone else, the problem with people in this world right now who don't love Jesus, their problem is that this, this, uh, this indwelling sin hiccup, we might call it, consigns everyone even the most ardent self-righteous person who calls himself a jew think first century here it consigns them to death and the law that they boast in that they love to boast in that they should indeed boast in because david boasts in it all over psalm 119 is powerless to get them out of this grave predicament so in and through the torah the law He says in verse 21, not some other law, by the way. He desires to do good, but evil is still present within him. In the inner man in the deep crevices of the image of God that is stamped on every person on this planet wants to delight in the law of God as a path to righteousness and justice and peace. Verse 22, but in his members, in his person, that law wars within his mind, that being the law of sin. There's still the reality of of sinfulness. Verse 23. And then at the end there, if you look at verse 24, it seems weird what Paul does here. But in doxological praise, Paul just blurts out a moment of hope for this predicament. In humility, he says in verse 24, the only solution is for this wretched man to cry out for deliverance. It's the only solution, to cry out for deliverance. It is God through Jesus Christ our Lord who is the the deliverer, he says in verse 25. So in his mind, he serves the law of God, but with his flesh, he serves the law of sin. The law, the law is good and reflects God, but guess what? It's a weapon in the hands of sin. In verse 25, by the way, he's speaking in solidarity with Israel because he himself was there. You, you're going to read, we'll find later in Romans 9, where he kind of, you know, his kinsmen according to the flesh, he feels the weight of his fellow Jews who are not right with God because they don't believe Christ. And he feels the weight of it. And we read um, earlier Galatians 2, Paul does the same very thing. Kind of a moment of solidarity. So let's figure out what to do with this and then we'll, we'll um, move on. To communion, So the, the text is fairly verbose, and it does cover a lot of ground, but there's, but there's a lot to learn, and not least for us to learn is being the lesson of what genuine repentance and remorse looks like when we consider our sinful state apart from Christ. Here's the thing. Christians never graduate from the school of mortification. Christians never, ever graduate from the school of mortification, mortifying your flesh, mortifying sin. I do think Paul's talking about unregenerate people, specifically the the Jews who were rejecting Christ and Gentiles who thought they needed to be Jews. That's the problem, Galatians. But Christians, you you never outgrow your need to put sin to death, all right? You never do. We never outgrow our need for repentance of sin. We never outgrow our need for grace. We never move on from this most basic aspect of Christianity, namely our need to put sin to death. It needs to be put to death in us, and it needs to be put to death in the world in us in our families in this church in our communities sin needs to be put to death and notice that paul drills down to the depths of human hopelessness here (laughs) he removes all excuses all barriers all impediments he says that sin is the problem christ is the solution end of story every time sin is the problem christ is the solution he doesn't make excuses and entertain the blame shifting What did Adam do? This woman you gave me. What did Eve do? The serpent. Okay, what did Israel do? Oh, let's go back to Egypt, it was better to be slaves there. Okay, blame shifting is gone. There's no room for it in the Christian life. Not an ounce of it, not in our marriages, not in our families, not in our churches. We have to, this is why we're in the struggle we're in, by the way, as a nation, because people don't want to take responsibility. You have politicians like Joe Biden who will stand up, have been in government for 48 years and say, your government has failed you. Bro. You've, you were in the White House eight years and now you're going to tell me the government has failed me? No one wants to take responsibility. It's always blame shifting everywhere. It's that, that person's fault, this person's fault. We, we always are blame shifting and Paul in this passage says enough of it. There's no room for it anymore. He doesn't make excuses, and he doesn't entertain the blame shifting. All the way through, he says that the situation is dire, the situation is hopeless, and when hopelessness ends, the gospel begins. When all hope seems gone, the grace of God comes and fills it. When we're all out of options, and we have come to the very end of ourselves, that is when the gospel takes root, period and here Paul makes several things clear and perhaps his most luminous and enlightening enlightening point is this. Man's greatest problem is not the law of God, but sin that seeks to seek, kill, and destroy. To kill, steal, and destroy. The greatest problem in your life is not the politicians or the people around you, the greatest problem is sin. It's rebellion, it's lawlessness. That's your problem, that's my problem, that's the problem in the world. And far too much of Christian teaching today gets wrong, this relationship between law and sin. He sends, spends the whole chapter talking about it. Why is it in our Bibles? Well, it's a problem. We have a, a, a mix-up on what the two things are. We genuinely think today that, and for the most part it, se- part it seems, that the law of God is, is this giant hurdle on our race towards heaven. We think it's a hurdle an obstacle on our race to heaven. Many Christians think that today. The the same Christianity that built Western civilization will never, ever, ever be another force in the world until it captures, again, a fresh vision and an application of the law of God. Okay? And that's why we have people also who want to hold up natural law. Natural law only gets you so far. But it's the revealed law of God. That gets you where you need to go. So Christianity is never ever the, the same. Christianity that built Western civilization, that gave us hospitals, that gave us um, all these things that we enjoy today—all of those things—it'll never be another force in the world until it recaptures a vision of the law of God. Christianity, by the way, the West, it's gone in the West. It's deteriorating. It's flickering. It's moved south to the global South. Christianity's thriving place: South America. Africa is thriving in places like Iran, ironically. Because they're just running out of hope there, but Christianity's on the rise. It's moving. It will always move. But it's never going to be recaptured here until we have a fresh vision for the law of God. And, and if you don't have Psalm 119 as your main prayer book, you're missing out. You're missing out. The longest book in the Bible. And David loves and praises the gift of God's law. So the passage is abundantly clear anyway. The law of God is not your enemy. Your enemy is sin, not the messenger who showed up and showed you the problem, okay? Um, Maybe our plumber friends experience this here, uh, but you don't yell at the plumber simply because he's the expert who came into your house and said that, well, you were negligent and that's why your basement's flooded. That's what the law does. And you don't blame him. You blame your own negligence, your own sin. I'm sure some of our guys get yelled at for that all the time. But the law is not your enemy, it's not your enemy. So Paul, he puts his finger on the sore of Israel's current debacle in his day. Israel's history is a a repetition of Adam's garden story. Okay, Adam was exiled from the garden. What happened to Israel? They were exiled from the land. (laughs) They They were sent out too. Adam was alive and in covenant with God in the garden. The commandment came, and then temptation came, and then sin came. And what did Adam and, what happened to Adam and Eve? They were sent out. They were exiled. Sin reared its ugly head. they were exiled. And the same was true for Israel in Jesus' day, and Israel in Paul's day. They were dead in their sins. They were enslaved in Egypt. God rescued them out of slavery, baptized them in the Red Sea, and gave them his law as a way of life. And several times in Deuteronomy, look, this is is life for you. If you obey this, things go well. If you disobey it, things go very bad. The wheels fall off. The thing falls in the ditch. Everything's a problem. And if that's not our country right now, I don't know what is. So he he gave them the law, but the law was demonstrating their inability to live holy lives. And the same is today, true of us, the new Israel, the church, when we don't repent of our sins, when we don't repent of our gossip, our bearing false witness, our lusts, our greed, our unrighteous infatuation with material goods, um, our penchant to murder people in our hearts through our anger, okay? When we don't repent of those things, guess what? what happens? Things go bad. Things go sideways. When we don't repent of those things, is it any wonder that we get exiled? Is it any wonder that our nation is being tossed about in a giant salad spinner? Is it any wonder? It shouldn't surprise us. We don't repent. okay? I, I saw a sign on the way here. The church is essential. They had it out front of their church building. No, you're not. Because you put the sign up, which tells everyone you're actually not. You're not essential. And the reason you're not essential is because you're not fighting for the kingdom. You're not repenting with us. We're not advocating for the preborn who are being assassinated every day. We're not doing the things that we have been called to do to be salt and light in a nation. We have said to the world, we are non-essential So we don't repent, the church doesn't repent. And let me tell you, lest I'm misunderstood here, I don't mean to suggest that we're only supposed to be repenting for the inner things. Paul does talk a lot in this passage about the inner things, of the inner struggle of the sinner, things that you and I before our conversion, you know, had problems with. But remember what Paul has said, Earlier in Romans, he said the just shall live by faith. We must live in pursuit of the dominion mandate, which is just the, is, is the great, what the Great Commission is built upon. You might even say that the Great Commission presupposes the dominion mandate from Genesis 2. But we live by faith, we build our lives by faith, and part of the building is tearing down of idols. The removal of the idols in our own hearts, the idols in our families, the the idols in the town square okay that it goes it works out from there sin doesn't just cause you to think or feel bad things either sin takes root in institutions sin takes root in cultures and when it's left unchecked it's the result of statism that we have today and it all stems from a church that's been apathetic has been silent has been muzzled literally and has said, no, we have nothing to say. So sin is the great problem. Sin is the adversary here, not the law. And what happens when you let sin creep in? I, I think Paul, by the way, is alluding to the, God's warning to Cain about sin seeking an opportunity to seize us. It, it's there lying in wait. Uh, God warned Cain about that. And uh, it's the same for us. It's the same for everyone. When you, when you let this seizing take place, injustice abounds. When your life is lived in neutral, just cruising along and assuming everything's just fine, that's when things go bad. That's how marriages fall apart, by the way. It doesn't just happen because one small argument happened. No, no, no. There are piles and piles and piles of arguments that go way back and they've been left unchecked. You've not done anything about it. And the same is true in your own life. One round of bitterness here, sprinkle in some anger and, and jealousy over there. Maybe, you know, you just have a bout of stress and fear in your life. Fear is, we have enough fear going around today. Just let a little fear added into that. And what do you have? Suddenly you have a recipe for an absolutely horrible life. And the solution, friends, is at the end of the chapter make sure you look there if you have your Bibles, we must cry out, verse 24, we must cry out to Jesus Christ our Lord for deliverance. That's the solution. We must turn to Him. Okay, we can have rallies all day and rallies are good. I like going to rallies. That's fine. But at the heart of any change is going to be a crying out to Christ for deliverance. Not just merely educating people. Oh, if they get the vaccine insert knowledge right, then they'll be good to go. Or if they, if they learn this about the Constitution, then they'll be good to go. No, 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 no. That's good, and we want to do those things. But our answer our, to the solution is to cry out to the Lord Jesus. We must turn to Him. Your life must consist of a deep groaning for the peace of Christ. Your life must consist of that. It must be a deep groaning for the peace of Christ. True faith is in the groaning. True faith is in the groaning. The crying out to Jesus in humility and boldness. We can now, thanks to Christ, approach the throne boldly. Not timidly, not insecurely, but boldly, Hebrews tells us. That's the only way to have victory. We must resist the temptation to revolt against God. We must resist the temptation to try and govern our lives on our own. We must insist instead on the law word of God as a means towards life, as a means toward beauty, as a means toward righteousness and justice. And it starts with us believing this very simple truth. The Christian life from start to finish is one of victory, not defeat. Too many Christians are walking around today defeated as a self-induced problem. From start to finish, it is one of victory. We have been brought out of the Adam Sin Lawlessness category, and we have been instead brought into the grace, Christ Grace law abiding category, law blessing category, and thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit. So we look to Jesus, we look to Him, Church, we look for His deliverance, and in our looking to Him, we point everybody else to the same place. Let's pray. Father, you've been good and gracious to us. You have given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You have given us everything we need for life and doctrine. And Father, we, we are confessing that Cross and crown, first and foremost, wants to be at the head of the repentance line. Father, we have sinned and astray a against you, and we have tried to blame shift. We have um, tried so hard to, to live our lives apart from you and your governance, and we, and we repent for that. And we also um, interpose on behalf of our nation, um, our our localities, our state of Virginia here, and also our nation. uh, We have sinned in, 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 in egregious ways. We have tried the novelty of humanist government. We have tried so hard to not follow your paths. And Father, we pray for forgiveness. Would you cause us to repent? And would you grant us the forgiveness you promise in the gospel? We are very much... Um, we are very much in a heap of trouble at the moment. And the reason is because we are not crying out to you. So we do that today. We cry out to you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. And we thank you that your spirit has been given to us. And we ask all of this in the name of Christ our King. Amen.